Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. My name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and we're here to do another webcast. Our guest today, a very special person, uh, is Mary Engel from the Federal Trade Commission in Washington, D.C. Uh, Mary is an attorney and has an undergraduate degree from Harvard and a law degree from the University of Virginia. She's been uh, with the FTC after practicing law in Washington since 1990 and has, no, has had a number of positions there, and she's now the head of the Division of Advertising Practices. That division has done a number of things regarding diet and weight, like um, going after companies that have made um, unfair claims regarding weight loss practices, and now they're interested as well in food advertising directed at children. So welcome, Mary. Nice to have you here. It's nice to be here. So let's start by uh, talking a little bit about the FTC and what its regulatory authority is. Basically, the FTC's mission is to promote free and fair advertising to consumers and to preserve competition among uh, competitors and, and companies in the marketplace. So with respect to consumer protection, really our mission is to ensure that adver advertising claims are truthful, not misleading, and backed up by good substantiation. Okay, that sounds good. So let's dive right into how this area applies to food advertising to children. Um, there's a history that the FTC has, a very interesting history that goes back into the 1970s when it first got interested in dealing with food marketing directed at children. And uh, something from that uh, called KidVid came about. And I'd be curious to hear your uh, interpretation of that history. It's really important to today's landscape, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, there's actually quite a lot of similarities between what happened in the 1970s and what's happening today. There was a lot of concern in the 1970s about the amount of advertising kids were seeing on television, and particularly the amount of advertising that they were seeing for sugary foods cereals and soft drinks and candy and the like because of the uh, high rates of cavities children were experiencing. So there was a, a lot of interest uh, in whether ads to, to kids should be regulated or eliminated altogether so that there wouldn't be, um, you know, this kids being surrounded essentially by ads for sugary foods. So the FTC looked into that and actually initiated a rulemaking uh, proceeding back in 1978, 30 years ago now, um, that considered a number of options, including banning all advertising to children under the age of eight um, and, or imposing restrictions on the advertising of really sugary foods to children. Okay. And so what happened then? Um, there was this proposal and then there was uh, public comment and a lot of interest by the food industry, of course. And then uh, it had an interesting impact on the agency, I know. Yes, it did. Um, we did receive a lot of comments and, and uh, compiled an extensive record. Um, but what we, what we found was that um, while everybody agreed that uh, it would be better if kids didn't see as much advertising for sugary foods as they did, there wasn't at all an agreement, the same agreement, on whether the right approach was for the government to outlaw advertising uh, of these products to kids. 
And um, one reaction we had was from the Washington Post, which issued an editorial calling the FTC the national nanny and, and saying basically that it was preposterous that the government thought it was appropriate for, for it to step in and, and, and pr essentially to protect parents from the nagging of their own kids because, after all, these foods were still going to be on the shelves whether or not they were advertised, and, and why should the government be be protecting uh, parents from their own from their own children, and Congress also was quite concerned. And in fact, um, it was concerned enough, and concern may be understating it, <laughs> because not only did it amend um, the statute that the FTC operates under to prohibit us from continuing the rulemaking proceeding that we had initiated. But it also actually let the funding for the agency lapse, and we were shut down for a couple of days. Everybody had to go home, and um, it was well over a decade before the Congress uh, reauthorized the FTC. You know, it was amazing to me as I was uh, reading this history somewhere about how um, swiftly and powerfully the food industry intervened with people in Congress to have the FTC stripped of some of its regulatory authority in this case, as you just said. And, um, but at times are different now, I believe, and now, now there's more interest in Congress and less uh, willingness, I guess if you want to put it this way, to be pushed around by the industry. And so the FTC is back considering these things full bore again. So let's talk about the situation today. Um, I'd like to loop back to the issue of food marketing directed at children, but I know you have also done a lot of work on deceptive weight loss ads. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that work and what sort of practices you were out to stop? Sure. You know, we have seen um, probably for the last 20 years, but especially in the last uh, 10 plus years, uh, an explosion in the number of of ads that are hawking weight loss pills, miracle pills essentially, pills that you can take and still eat your favorite foods and you don't have to work up a sweat and, and you can lose all the weight you want. The pounds will just you know melt away. And these ads are very, very effective. Um, sales are in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for these products. And so we have sued ourselves literally hundreds of advertisers of these products attempting to put a lid on it. Um, you know, we, we sue these companies, we stop the advertising, we get money back for consumers, but we still see more of them. And so one of the other um, initiatives we've undertaken is to work with the media who's, who's disseminating the ads, the TV stations, the newspapers, the magazines, to ask them not to run these ads in the first place. And we've identified seven weight loss claims that are always false, that there's just no scientific basis for. And we published a guide for the media called Red Flag Bogus Weight Loss Claims. And we really enlisted their help to stop running these ads in the first place and to try to um, stem the tide a bit of these deceptive weight loss claims. You know, I can't thank you enough on behalf of consumers for doing this because there's been so much exploitation over the years. And, you know, people who are trying to lose weight are desperate to do it. There just aren't that many effective treatments out there, and they're highly vulnerable to these false claims. So for you to step in and get rid of uh, some of that or a substantial amount of it is so valuable. 
I remember um, I have a series of these that I show when I give talks, and I remember one was for these magic glasses that you could wear <laughs> that was supposed to allow you to look at food, but you'd no longer want to eat it. <laughs> so you'd see a chocolate piece of chocolate cake, and you'd really want it, but you put on the magic glasses, and all of a sudden it wouldn't appeal to you anymore. So some of them are laughable, but but enough of them are, are so exploitative that it's great you're taking taking advantage and of even the opportunity the, to deal the with it. Ones that seem laughable, um, you know, we had weight loss earrings and gadgets that you strap to your midsection. Um, they're often advertised in a way that's that's very persuasive. That they talk about scientific studies. They things been clinically tested. And consumers will, will buy them. And as you mentioned, they are vulnerable. And, and so it's, it's important for us to take action. So as the United States Consumer Protection Agency, what um, is going on now with food advertising directed at children? Because you've done a num- taken a number of steps in recent years, studies and um, meetings and reports and things like that. What's the landscape at, the time, at this time? Well, right now, um, there's two, uh, I would say, initiatives we have. One is a study of food marketing to children and adolescents that Congress uh, asked us to do. And we are uh, very much in the middle of that study right now. We sent subpoenas to 44 food and beverage companies, asking them to, uh, actually requiring them to provide information on their activities in the area of marketing food and beverages to children and adolescents as well. So we're looking at the full age range of 2 to 17. Um, And also to report on their expenditures, how much they spend on the various types of promotion. And it's very comprehensive. It looks not just at the traditional TV, radio, or print ads, but also on newer methods of advertising like advert games, which are video games that are really advertisements for a food product that you play on the computer, um, website advertising, viral advertising, events and promotions, sponsorships, um, contests, uh, product packaging, the use of children's favorite characters, perhaps from a TV show or a movie, and that sort of uh, licensing and tie-in. So we're, we're doing a very comprehensive study of the full range of activities of uh, food marketing to children and uh, adolescents. If I understand the sequence right, you put out a, vo- a call for the companies to voluntarily provide this information but the response was so poor that the agency felt that subpoenas were necessary. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. We initially um, solicited information and got back very little and and, um, certainly nothing that was sufficient to really uh, put together the kind of report that Congress was asking for. And um, I've heard you say that when you issue the report, there will be aggregated information across companies, but not information specific to companies because that's protected. That's right. Uh, we w- wouldn't be able to identify you know, how much one individual company spent in any particular area, but we will aggregate how much uh, all of the companies spent, say, on TV advertising or marketing in schools or in-store promotions. Okay. You make a distinction between advertising and marketing, and there are, and I'd be curious to get your sense about how those two things differ from one another, because I think to most people they sound like the same thing. Um, but it, it dovetails with the, you know, the 2007 announcement by a number of food companies that they were going to cut back advertising to kids. Um, so tell me the distinction between those two words and how it fits in with this idea of self-regulation by the industry. 
Okay, well, sometimes advertising is viewed more narrowly. You think of commercials, for example, or advertisements in a magazine, whereas marketing encompasses a fuller range of promotions, promotional activities that a company might undertake. So, for example, if um, if there is a promotion where if you um, can send away so many box tops for a free T-shirt, uh, that's a kind of a promo- promotion. It's marketing, but it's not necessarily considered advertising. Um, or, for example, uh, having a vending machine in a school with your beverages available or your snacks available is not necessarily considered advertising, but it is a form of marketing. And so our study is looking at marketing in the broad sense to pick up all these kinds of promotions. You know, it's such a fast-moving landscape with technology, isn't it? It's almost hard to, to know tomorrow what the forms of marketing will be, even though you may be able to say what's occurring today. Um, and I was thinking specifically about advertisements being beamed over cell phones. And there's talk now that the companies pretty soon will launch a series of advertisements that will come over the cell phone specific to your location because of the global positioning chips that are in the modern cell phone. Is um, is it even known who has authority over that kind of practice? Well, it's an interesting question, and actually the FTC is going to be hosting a workshop on mobile marketing uh, in May, and one of the issues we're looking at is mobile marketing to kids. And uh, there's some... Uh, the Federal Communications Commission has some jurisdiction. There are certain statutes in place, and we have some jurisdiction. So it's a little bit complicated. Okay. Do you, do you believe that um, the same set of rules would apply to uh, marketing coming over the cell phone that would be like marketing coming over the television, that if it's unfair or deceptive that the government has the right to move in? Absolutely, and, and that's been the theme of the FTC um, for since the internet was introduced, basically, the same laws apply no matter what the medium, what the venue. Uh, there's a prohibition against uh, against deceptive or unfair advertising. You know, the food industry is like any other industry in that they'd rather not be regulated by government. And so it, when they perceive threat, that is, the government might step in or they're getting bad public relations, they very often step forward with promises of self-regulation that will voluntarily make these changes, and so the government doesn't have to do anything because we'll be good guys on our own. Um, and that certainly has happened in the food arena. So there's a, a group called KRU, the Children's Advertising Research Unit, and, um, and these voluntary uh, pledges that the companies have made. Um, what are some of those pledges that you've seen the industry make, and is there any evidence plus on, on the plus or minus side, that they've been able to keep their pledges and keep their word? Well, about a dozen food companies have, have made the pledge. And uh, the pledges cover a number of areas, but uh, one important one is that they will only advertise uh, better-for-you foods on children's programming. And they all have their different definitions of what constitutes a better-for-you food, but they are all based on... Um, government standards of some sort or standards by an authoritative body like the National Academies of Science. Um, And um, they've also pledged to not advertise in elementary schools, to um, restrict uh, product placement, that is having their 
having their products appear in video games uh, or movies, for example. And um, the, you know, we think the, pred- the pledges look very good. Um, initially, the, they had only promised to devote 50% of their advertising to Better For You Foods or to promoting um, a healthy lifestyle. But when push came to shove and they had to submit their pledges, they committed to doing 100%. So we think that was, it was a really a positive development. The pledges, most of them, have only, um, were only going to be implemented starting in January of 2008. So in other words, it's just starting, and it's kind of early to tell right now whether they're uh, actually abiding by the pledges. But they do have, the program does have, um, you know, there is someone who's watching <laughs> and who will be ho- hopefully holding their feet to the fire. So th- when you say someone is watching, is someone tracking the product placements in video games and the total marketing picture to know what changes industry is actually making? My understanding is that they s- submit what are kind of like compliance reports showing what they're doing, and those are being reviewed by uh, the Better Business Bureau that is that is uh, sponsoring this pledge program. Okay, that sounds good. Um, you know, because of course promises are just promises until you have some sense about whether they're following through. Yeah. So that's nice that they would be doing something like that. And but is it true that they're submitting the the reports of compliance to themselves because basically it's their voluntary group that's doing this, that it would be in charge of monitoring it? They are submitting them to the, uh, the part of the BBB. Okay, Better Business uh, Bureau. Yeah, the Better Business Bureau that's doing it. So it is a self-regulatory program. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> one thing the industry has done, well, I, let me, I have a question before I ask that one. Um, there are the very interesting unknown questions about human behavior and all this that's interesting. So for example, when the industry, even if they follow through with the pledge, which I would expect them to do, to advertise better for you foods, and that's a term that gets used quite specifically by the industry, you just never know how consumers are going to react. So the Snackwell cookie thing is the perfect example. You take a cookie that was high in fat and sugar, and they reduced the fat in it, but it took a taste hit, and consumers didn't like it as much, so they had to push the sugar up to compensate. So they ended up being the same number of calories they were before, but they were very heavily promoted as low-fat. And I don't know that anybody's actually studied this, but the lore is that people then felt licensed to eat a lot of Snackwell cookies when they would have eaten one before. Maybe now they'll have two or three because they feel it's a freebie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with these better-for-you better foods being advertised, it's probably a good thing if consumers eat the same amount of the food that they were eating before, but it's a healthier version of the food. Um, but if they feel licensed to eat more, or somehow the, the industry is even implying that you can now eat more, then it could have an overall negative effect. Um, I was wondering if that's been considered in any of the discussions that have taken place. Well, I have heard that, that point uh, raised before. Uh, I'm not sure how much it's been studied, and um, I'm not, I haven't seen any studies on that. I've, I've heard that concern as well as a similar concern that, you know, perhaps um, if consumers see, say, uh, you know, a sugar-free, fat-free pudding or treat like that, they might even choose to eat that for dessert instead of a healthier option like an apple or an orange. So. It's um, not even just maybe eating more, but perhaps substituting uh, 
when perhaps if it'd been the really full fat, <laughs> full calorie version, they might not have might not have taken that step. They might have gone for the healthier fruit. Um, and I, you know, I th- as you mentioned, it is it raises interesting questions about consumer behavior, and and I think it's it's an area we just don't have the answers to. I think. Um, um, there, uh, the companies have indicated uh, to us that they have seen a lot of increase in sales for their healthier f- or better for you options, suggesting that uh, there has been some substitution be- from the regular, say, potato chip to the light potato chip, for example. Whether there's an overall increase in sales, people are consuming more potato chips, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. You know, it's a shame there's not more research to address these questions, and they're not hard studies to do either. You just can follow some consumers and do some studies to find out what happens to their, you know, to consumer behavior when they're shown advertisements for one sort of food over another. So in any event, it would be nice if that deficit in the research were corrected, then we'd know about the human behavior. Another question I have for you is um, some of the companies have started to label their foods with symbols that um, they come up with on their own to signify that some foods are more have more of something or less of something else. So Kraft has their Sensible Solutions and Pepsi has their Smart Spot. General Mills has a series of symbols that they put on their cereals that will show which ones are higher or lower and different things. Um, there's been some talk about the wisdom of having a uniform system. Is that something that uh, the Federal Trade Commission is involved in, and do you think that would be a wise thing for the industry to consider? Yeah, we certainly, um, when we issued a report in this area a couple of years ago, um, we did uh, identify as a, an area of concern the proliferation of different SEAL programs and uh, suggested to industry that they consider a uniform logo. Uh, at that time, they all the, the companies were somewhat receptive to it, but not wholly because they had just gotten off the ground with their own individual programs, and that had apparently been quite a battle. But it's been a few years now, and there is an, an effort underway right now um, under the auspices of a group called the Keystone Center, which is kind of a facilitator of uh, dialogues that um, has a number of stakeholders participating in developing a, uh, a uniform seal or icon that could be placed on the front package, front of packages identifying better for you foods. And um, um, we have a FTC staff person who is participating in that dialogue and, and certainly think it's worth, uh, worth some effort there. One thing that you mentioned in the uh, presentation you just gave at the Rudd Center was some data that you had from how for how advertising has changed from 1977 to 2004. And in particular, you mentioned uh, a change in the number of ads for what you call sedentary entertainment. Can you explain what that's all about? Yeah, um, sedentary entertainment is uh, kind of a catch, catch-all phrase that covers products like DVDs, CDs, video games, movies, um, and um, other TV shows. And, and that what we saw that there's been a doubling in the, in the number of ads for those kinds of products uh, in the survey we conducted in 2004 compared to what there had been in the 1970s. And, and that was particularly true in the area of, of TV networks promoting their own TV shows. <laughs> So these types of advertisements could be contributing to ill health in children and adults for that matter, 
both because they, uh, the, the ones for food encourage eating unhealthy foods, but the ones that are promoting the sedentary entertainment keep people from being physically active. Yeah, they could. I mean, I think it's, it's hard to know exactly because, um, after all, books are sedentary entertainment, too, and I don't think people would be up in arms if there were a huge increase in advertising for books. <laughs> well, that's true. Good point. Um, but I, I think um, there is, um, particularly with respect to TV watching, there is more of a concern that mindless eating kind of coincides with watching TV, and so that's, a, that's its own problem. Let's talk just a moment about self-regulation again. When the FTC has to consider the self-regulatory pledges of industries, how do you decide when self-regulation is accomplishing what you hope and when it's not and when the government needs to step in? How are those decisions made? Well, in, in many areas, we actively encourage self-regulation. Um, it can be more flexible than government regulation. It can be put into place much more quickly than government regulations can be. And there also can be more, uh, because it's industry generated, more buy-in and acceptance by the industry itself. And uh, you don't have to worry about lawsuits challenging <laughs> the regulation as you would if, we, if the government tried to regulate. Um, and we particularly emphasize self-regulation where there's a concern that government regulation um, might not withstand uh, scrutiny under the First Amendment to the Constitution that protects free speech. And so, for example, in the area of alcohol advertising or um, uh, advertising uh, violent video games and uh, uh, movies and music to children, the FTC has really um, pushed self-regulation. And, and similarly with food marketing, the advertising um, is, you know, is protected by the First Amendment. And so any regulation would have to be really carefully crafted not to run afoul of that. And, and many times it, it just may make more sense for us to push the industry to self-regulate. But that doesn't mean that, the, that we don't have a role, that the government just says, go self-regulate and sits back and, and you know, shuts its eyes. We think it's really important for us to have an oversight role and to report and monitor and report periodically on what's happening. And in that way, um, if, we, if we don't think things are moving fast enough or in the right direction or far enough, we can report and basically place pressure on industry to, to do even more. You know, one of our previous guests uh, for one of these webcasts was Stephen Sugarman, who's a, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. He has a very interesting concept that he calls outcomes orientation. And his idea is that when you're holding industry accountable for improving itself in some way, government can get involved in prescribing certain practices or proscribing certain practices that the industry could do. Or you could, you could uh, dictate an outcome that the industry has to achieve, and then it's up to them to figure out how to get there. So, for example, with auto safety, you could put in certain regulations that say uh, this auto and that auto have to have a certain crumple zone rating. Uh, or that seat belts have to work according to some specification. You can get very involved in, in, in government deciding the best way to get to the goal. Or what you can do is just set the goal for the industry that auto fatalities have to reduce by a certain amount, be reduced by a certain amount, and then leave it to the industry to be 
uh, ingenious as it can sometimes be in getting to that goal. And they might even come up with better ideas than mm -hmm. government would do itself. So I'm wondering if that's been considered in any of these discussions. If you say uh, to the, the food industry that we want children's diets to improve by X percent or we want less childhood obesity, and you figure out how to get us there, uh, whether that would be an interesting thing. And has that been discussed at all? You know, I haven't heard that discussed before. It's an interesting concept. Um, I imagine there might be some pushback on that concept because of the idea that, well, after all, it's the parents who are buying the food, and how can we really influence that? You know, there's an... Uh, and then a related complication, too, with that is that there are many contributing factors to obesity. Yeah. And so trying to find out um, the, the precise contribution of something like children's food advertising would be pretty hard to do. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, you could say, well, I'm just making this number up, but let's say that children's food advertising is responsible for 12% of the poor diet and kids. Then you could say the industry, well, you've got to make a 12% difference in the positive direction in order this to break even and then it's up to you to get there but assigning a number like 12 percent would be very very hard to do it would be very hard and um, so for the time being um, the focus has been more on improving the advertising the food advertising that kids do see and hoping that has an effect <laughs> <laughs> on consumption all right so let's end with the this question if it's hard to prognosticate what the landscape will look like down the road um, and so I'm not going to ask you to predict, but if you could write the script for what the advertising landscape regarding food and children would look like down the road, what would you say? Well, I would hope that there would be a move towards more uniformity in the standards that are used to determine whether a food is, you know, better for you or healthy enough to be advertised to kids. And I think... Um, there should also be, um, you know, we should take a look at, at how stringent the placement standards are for where the advertisements run or the different kinds of ways that the foods are marketed to kids um, to make sure that, that the changes that the companies are undertaking are significant enough to really make a, cha make a difference. Okay. I wish we had more time because this issue is so interesting mm -hmm. with a, tr a tremendously complicated legal framework here. Uh, lots of politics at work. You have government fighting with other, uh, not in the government fighting, but the industry fighting with some advocacy groups and things. And it's just so complicated and interesting, but so important because mm -hmm. I think the research is fairly clear that the food advertising directed at children is having a negative impact on their diets. So anything that can be done to make that situation better would be very good for the public health. So thank you for all your work on this. And, and it's really wonderful to see the Federal Trade Commission involved in the way it is and really pushing hard on these issues. And I think there's only good that will come from that. So uh, congratulations for your good work. And thank you on behalf of the public. Thank you, Kelly. Um, again, this was a webcast done by the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Uh, we have an excellent website at www.yalerudcenter.org, and on that is a list of the, the where this this webcast will appear, but also all the others that have been done as well. A really excellent group of speakers have joined us for these. Thank you very much.